my mother, a Southern girl from Northern Louisiana, every Sunday for as long as I could remember, collard greens were always on Sunday's menu. So that meant preparation on Saturday, cleaning them, picking them. And my mother was really picky about her collards. She made the cheesecake and it had cracks in the top of it. And she said, never worry about the cracks. That's what the cherries or the blueberries are for on top. Do you know what the pink stuff is? This crazy weird combination of Jello and Cool Whip. It can't even be real whipped cream, which just hurts my culinary soul. Welcome to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan. We've been talking to a lot of celebrity chefs, but at its core, this show is about cooking at home for the people we love. I'm a home cook. I never went to culinary school, and I never worked in a restaurant. The heart of all recipes is home cooks and people who are passionate about sharing great food and the stories and techniques behind the dishes they love. And on today's show, we're featuring some of our favorite home cooks, the All Recipes All-Stars. This is a select group of community members who love to regularly cook, rate, and review recipes, post photos, and give cooking advice. They're not only our brand ambassadors, but they've created some of our most popular and highest rated recipes. And today, we're talking with them about their favorite recipes and kitchen memories. Take Jessie Sheehan. She used to be an attorney, but now she's a baker. She's developed and tested recipes for several cookbooks, including Deb Perlman's Smitten Kitchen Every Day and Snoop Dogg's From Crook to Cook. And she's written two cookbooks herself. Welcome to Homemade, Jessie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you and with All Star Recipe peeps and um, the whole thing. Well, our All Recipes All Stars are like rock star royalty to our All Recipe community, and it really is a community. A hundred percent. What I love is recipes that come from people's families that people have been making forever that maybe they twisted and tweaked over time to make it their own or to modernize it in some way. And I feel like this community very much speaks my language in terms of that and in terms of the things they like to make and the origins of the recipes that they like to use. I know that's something important to you because your book, The Vintage Baker, is all about that. The stories, the traditions. This show was based on that premise. We wanted to have a show where we could talk about family recipes and favorite recipes and the stories behind those, how they came to be. Tell me a little bit about your book, The Vintage Baker. I collect these vintage recipe booklets, which were these kind of amazingly smart advertising tools, you know, maybe between like, at least in my book, from like the end of the 19th century through maybe the mid 20th century. And there were these little booklets filled with recipes that you would purchase or be given for free when you bought a box of sugar, a bag of flour, a new refrigerator. And the idea was to encourage the housewife, and I'm going to say housewife because back in the day, that's exactly what it was. I don't think they were imagining a male audience. They were imagining a female audience. And these little booklets were to encourage that person, that housewife, to use domino sugar, to use Frigidaire refrigerator. And they had bought the product or they had bought the, the uh, appliance. And now they had recipes that they could use that called for that ingredient and that called for that appliance. So it was a wonderful way to not only get people People to buy your product, but to keep buying it. And the recipes I love because they were super simple, super homey. You know, back in the day, there weren't a million different complicated ingredients for better, for worse. 
And so it was very much like pantry friendly recipes, which I still love a pantry friendly recipe. They were short and easy to follow instructions, which I also love. And they were foolproof because they'd been tested in the test kitchens of Domino Sugar or Frigidaire, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, like, and this is why I thought they would make a wonderful book, they have the most whimsical covers and the most amazing drawings throughout them. And they're just so fun to kind of have in your hands. The whole package of them completely spoke to me. Jesse, I got to tell you, I am the foster home for those <laughs> kinds of things. Oh for God. some reason, people want to give me their vintage cookbooks like those and also the little spiral bound church lady cookbooks yes love. i have hundreds because people want me to adopt their mom's or their grandmama's books they don't want to get rid of them but they don't want them so they want to give them to a good home and i don't even know what i'm going to do with all these things i have so many i love that they're precious and like you said they're full of interesting recipes And even techniques and things, you know, back in the day, don't you think this is interesting? Like if you were going to make, let's just say a macaroni and cheese, right? The recipe would say, make a white sauce. Maybe they would say, make a bechamel. It would never give you the step-by-step for those basic things, like make whipped cream. You wouldn't see the how-to to make whipped cream. But today, you have to have all of those details because people don't know instinctively how to make a bechamel or a whipped cream. It is so true. Some of my favorite recipes, I think it's like a cornstarch booklet of mine. And it's a recipe in my book for a blackberry lime pie. And of course I added the lime. It was just a blackberry pie originally, but the recipe was literally make a pie crust, (laughs) put fruit in your pie crust, (laughs) add some sugar, put it. This is what I love the most. Put it in a warm oven. Right. Like what the... Is a warm up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they knew. Yeah. They they knew. They did. Yeah. And there'd be like three steps for every recipe. It wouldn't be like several pages oh of gosh, instruction and, and a whole page of ingredients. I think I was born in the wrong era. I'm the person who like, even though I have a million cookbooks and I love collecting them and I love them and I want to support my friends and my peers when a new book comes out. If the recipe goes on to the second or third page, I have to skip it. I'm always dog-earing literally like the hot fudge sauce recipe in the back of the book because I'm always attracted to the really simple ones. I know this lemon velvet sheet cake that you have on the All Recipes site is one of your favorites. And it's got a funny story. So the funny thing about me, just a little backstory, is that I did not grow up baking. I didn't have a mom whose apron strings I was holding on to from one year old or climbing on a, a, a stool to whisk something with her. I didn't really come from a baking family. But I did. My father's mom, my paternal grandmother, did like to bake. However, I wasn't interested in kind of learning from her. So when we went to visit her, I was extremely excited for her. She made these miniature Toll House cookies that I loved and she made chocolate cakes that I loved and she made challah bread, which was delicious. But what I really loved was her lemon velvet sheet cake. And that was kind of a departure for me because I'm not really a lemon person. I'm very much a chocolate person, but loved this cake. It had this delicious kind of glaze that shattered when you bit into it because it hardens like that. It was just to die. 
And many years later, after my grandmother passed and I began to be interested in baking, I thought, oh, I want to see her old recipes. So I contacted my cousin who was older than me and who had always loved baking. So she had all my grandmother's recipes. And I said, Rachel, you got to send me the lemon velvet sheet cake recipe. I'm dying to make it. It's going to be so fun. I have this brand new blog. Can't wait to put it up there. You know, please help. She sends me the recipe and the first ingredients is a box of lemon velvet cake mix, which is either Betty Crocker or Duncan Hines. I don't know which one. And it was such an amazing aha moment, I have to tell you, because I loved box cake mix. I always have... I always will. On my birthday, I have my sons make me like a Betty Crocker or a Duncan Hines chocolate cake with with frosting from a can. Well, I don't think there's any shame in that. So you have since perfected a different version of your grandma's lemon velvet sheet cake, and you shared that with us for one of your recipes on All Recipes. A hundred percent, because even though I do love a boxed cake mix, I kind of also appreciated the challenge of taking this recipe of my grandmother's that called for one and trying to replicate it. And I I joke, but really I'm being serious. My goal in every cake I develop is to try to make it taste like a boxed cake because that's the flavor I love. That was all-star Jessie Sheehan. You can find the 2.0 version of her grandmother's cake recipe by searching all recipes for lemon velvet sheet cake. Also, go to her website at jessiesheehanbakes.com. She's got tons of recipes, cakes, cookies, pies, and beautiful photography also. Next up, all-star Angela Sackett from New Jersey also enjoys baking, and she's got a hot new take on a century-old classic, the Dutch baby. Everybody loves that. This one's a paleo version, so all you gluten-free folks, listen up. You're going to want to try this. So I looked up your ingredient list really quick. It's got butter, eight eggs, coconut milk, arrowroot powder. I've never even tried to use arrowroot powder. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah. Okay. This is very interesting. They say that arrowroot powder got its name from Native Americans who actually used it to treat wounds. Now, I don't know if that's a true fact, but that is, you will find that if you look up the history of arrowroot, but it it has the texture of like cornstarch. It's really silky and powdery. That's used a lot in grain-free baking because when you mix it with a heavier, like a nut flour, almond flour, or cashew flour, it brings that lightness to it. Okay. And you use chestnut flour in this recipe. Yes, I did because I had it and it was fun and funky, but you can use almond flour or you name it, what you got. Yep. Does it rise? Would the arrowroot be the thing that gives it the leavening? I think it's the eggs more than anything. Okay. And then lemon extract, stevia, and sea salt. And now I'm assuming this recipe is posted on our All Recipes website. It is, yes. And it's got some good reviews on it, too, thankfully. I think the title might be Grain-Free Dutch Baby. Okay. So y'all look for that. That sounds really good. And especially if you're paleo or have some dietary restrictions, this might be just the thing you need to get that Dutch baby back in your menu and your rotation. And listen, girl, you would like it even if you're not paleo, I promise. Oh, I'm going to try it. I'm always open to trying new things. I heard you say you have a blog Mm -hmm. and it's dedicated to gathering. Tell me the name of the blog again. It is Everyday Welcome, and I write about food and faith and living a welcoming life. Angela goes by the screen name Super Hot Mama on All Recipes, and her grain-free Dutch baby is just one of the many sweet offerings from our All-Stars. Howard Wolfhurst of Nevada 
shared some tips about a sweet treat he makes that has a very special backstory that began decades ago. It's a tough story, right? Because when you realize what I had to go through to get a piece of that cheesecake, <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? So um, I met my lovely wife, Jeannie, in high school in 1980. We were seniors, and we were in an advanced biology lab class. And I sat down, and I turned to one of my friends, and I said, who is that girl over there? I was relatively new to the school, and he told me. And I said, oh, I, I like her. And, and the next day, these are lab tables with about four seats around them. I came back to sit where I had been sitting the day before, and there was a young lady there. And she pointed over to the table where she had been sitting the day before. And, and my seat was now over with Jeannie. So that's how it all started. And it was, for me, love at first sight. It took her a little bit longer to, to get used to me. But she did bring me home, and I met her father for the first time, which she really wasn't excited to introduce me to him. And he was, you know, a, a truck driver, construction worker, and um, had a presence. And I just felt like it was a fight every time with him. He really didn't want me around. And every day I did have the opportunity to meet him, he would make sure I knew that uh, I should move along. Right? <laughs> Like any daddy would with a sweet daughter. Yeah, trying to protect his daughter. Right. It was his only girl. But uh, as I had said, you know, he, he was this Archie Bunker kind of guy, and I was definitely meathead. And he would, right, every, <laughs> the things he would say just were astounding. And uh, I was invited to Thanksgiving. And again, it's a very quiet family, much different from the world that I come from. I come from a very large Irish family. And they're very reserved and conservative and quiet. And they don't show a lot of emotion um, outwardly. And I went to Thanksgiving and sat at the table. And Jeannie's brothers were there. And, of course, her mom and dad. And, you know, we have a great meal. Anyway, towards the end of the meal, Jeannie's mom goes into the kitchen and comes out with a cheesecake. And up until that time, I really believed that cheesecake, you could only have one at a restaurant, right? I had seen apple pies and pumpkin pies and inhaled them all as a 17-year-old would. But she comes out of the uh, kitchen with this beautiful cheesecake. It was really something that uh, was a big surprise for me. We had this family that was conservative, reserved, and here was this beautiful, creamy cheesecake being laid on the table. But it was really a big contrast for me to see that cheesecake. And it's something that we proudly make every year. It stuck with you a long time. And now the recipe is being passed down through the generations. Do you know where it originated, where she got it? No, I don't. And I asked, you know, we, we've talked about this a few times. Jeannie, my wife, is a tremendous baker. She bakes all the time. In fact, the first two years we were married, I ate cake for dinner. That's what she did. And when I asked her about the cheesecake specifically, she said she doesn't have early memories of it. She just knew it was a part of their life all the time. We do have the original recipe card, and she's had to adjust it over time as she's made it. But the one thing I did come away from is probably about 15 years ago, she made the cheesecake and I cracked in the top of it. And I really had never thought about that at all because it had always had candied cherries on top. 
And she said, never worry about the cracks. That's what the cherries or the blueberries are for on top. And, and so recently we had made the recipe. And of course, you know, I had crevices in it like the Grand Canyon. Did a little bit of research. And I have a friend who is a pastry chef, CIA trained up in New York. And, you know, one of the tips she gave me is to turn a plate upside down on top of a cheesecake. And that's supposed to help self-heal the cheesecake. Huh. You mean after it comes out of the oven? Yeah, if it starts to develop the cracks outside the oven, because what I understand is the cracks start to happen when the cake is cooling down. And then, of course, Chef John, he had a nice tip, which is essentially turn the oven off when the cheesecake is ready and don't take it out for about two hours. And it will cool down in the oven and not have the cracks. What a great tip from our all-star Howard Wolferst. I'm definitely going to try that cheesecake tip next time I make one at home. Coming up after the break, we head to the Heartland for tips on making something that, as a Southerner, I've been making since I was a little girl. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade. Today we're talking to some of the All Recipes All-Stars. They're the brand ambassadors and mentors in our community of 60 million home cooks. Sheila Johnson, who goes by Cooking with Sheila on All Recipes, is from Kansas City, Missouri. But her cooking roots are somewhere else. So my mother, a Southern girl from Northern Louisiana, every Sunday for as long as I could remember, collard greens were always on Sunday's menu. So that meant preparation on Saturday, cleaning them, picking them. And my mother was really picky about her collards. And so she wouldn't let me just cut off the excess stem. No, I have to pick the leaf away from the stem. I know. <laughs> yes. Same thing, girl. <laughs> the same thing. But I did learn a little bit of a method now. Somebody taught me this where I stack. Yes. And then I cut the vein out of a bunch of them all at one time. <laughs> oh, where was that back in the 70s, huh? I know, right? I had a lot <laughs> less time in the kitchen cleaning those collard greens. My mama used to take hers and put them in a lingerie bag and wash them in the washing machine. Really? Yes. I love it. Yes. On the gentle cycle. I've never heard that way. But, you know, my granddad was a farmer, had a small farm here in Kansas. And so we got our collard greens from my granddad's farm. And so the sand, the grit, the washing them, the cleaning them, cutting them, you know, the right size and that sort of thing. But my mother transitioned in 2013. And so when I miss her the most, I go to the market and I pick the best bunches of collards, like the ones that she would have picked. 
And I come home and I turn on some of her favorite music and I invite her spirit in and I cook them collard greens and some hot water cornbread. And yesterday we had roasted chicken to go with it. So girl, I am coming to your house. Oh, yes. I love feeding people. So come on. (laughs) Now, I will tell you, I hear a lot of people think they don't like collard greens, but I tell them all the time, it's only because you didn't cook them right. If you cook collard greens right, you're going to love them. So you make hot water cornbread. Now, I've never made it. Tell me about that. So hot water cornbread, it is so simple. And I'm actually not that great at it because my mother didn't measure anything. It's just plain old self-rising white cornmeal. You boil water and you slowly pour the water in there, but the consistency of it is what makes the difference, okay? And so you get a uh, like a little bowl that has cold water in it so that when you pick up a spoon of the cornmeal mixture, you make sure that your hands have been wet with the cold water and you pat that cornmeal mixture and then you drop it in hot grease in a cast iron skillet. I know exactly. what. So we call those Johnny Cakes. Yes. Okay, same thing. Fry them up in a little bit of oil in a cast iron skillet and get the edges all crispy and just put a little bit of butter on those and dip them in your collard greens. Yes, oh my God. And that pot liquor from them collard greens. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Hey, you know, I had Carla Hall on this podcast a little while back and she taught me something. I didn't think I could learn anything about turnips or collards. And Carla taught me two things, really. First thing is they freeze. I never knew it, but they do. So when you make them, make a lot and you can freeze them. Never knew that. Second thing is she doesn't do it like we've always done it, where the pot liquor is the residual effect of the cooking. Mm -hmm. She seasons all the liquid first and make sure she has a seasoning just like she likes it. Then she adds in the collards and cooks them. That is exactly how my mother would do. So my mother would take like onions, garlic, bell peppers, and she would saute them in a cast iron skillet first. Now she's got her water on the side where she's put. Now my mother used like fat back, ham hocks and stuff like that. Okay. Right, right. And so, she, so, and she would have that boiling and getting ready. So then she would take the sauteed onions and bell peppers that she seasoned. Then she would dump those over into the water once the ham hocks were done to a certain point. Then she would add the collard greens. Then it was very little adjusting after that because she seasoned those peppers and onions exactly the way she wanted them to taste. One of Sheila's most requested recipes on all recipes is something I'd never heard of before. It's called yasa. It's a West African dish. You can make yasa with either fish or chicken. I tell everybody it's an onion lover, lemon pepper lover's dish. And so you will slice up like, and not really sliced, but kind of, how do you call it when you've got an onion and you want them to be, they're not sliced, they're a little bigger than Yeah, like big, big chunks. So you use this marinade that has spicy brown mustard in it. You put fresh squeezed lemon in it. And all these spices. And so like I use red pepper, African yellow pepper, white pepper, a little bit of salt. And then I make my own like lemon pepper seasoning and I use that in there as well. And so you take that and you put these onions, this onion mixture, and you let it like marinate in that. 
Then you make a foil pack and you do the same thing with the chicken. You season the chicken the same way or the fish and you grill it. So you do your marinade and you let it stay in there for a certain amount of time. 30 minutes, an hour. I have done it overnight, but I can't say that it tastes any different. And then you take half of the onion mixture and you make a little foil pack and you just dump that on the charcoal grill too. And then you cook your chicken or your fish on the charcoal grill. And when it's done, you bring it and you put it in a pan. Now you've got some onions left that you didn't put on the grill. And you put them all in the pan, put them in the oven for about 15, 20 minutes and you serve it over white rice. Oh, it sounds good. Carol Castellucci-Miller lives in Dover, Ohio, about an hour and a half south of Cleveland, but she loves to travel. And when she does, she picks up new recipes and shares some of her favorites. One of my favorite recipes right now is sauteed avocados. Everywhere I go, especially that has a lot of avocados, like I've done it in, in Ecuador and Mexico, all over like South America when we travel, I will share this recipe. And the people there look at me like I'm crazy. Right? Like I am right now, like sauteed avocados. Oh, so you've never had it either. No, no. So like we had, when we were in Mexico, we had these uh, family of women who would come cook for us at least one meal a day that were provided by our hosts. It was a business trip and they would do breakfast and sometimes uh, dinner or whatever and be very authentic food. So the last morning there, I said, you know, we couldn't speak. They, They didn't speak English. I didn't speak Spanish. But I asked for avocados and said that I wanted to cook for them, you know, something for them too, to taste. And so I sliced the avocados, you know, just put it in a hot pan with a little bit of butter. And they're looking at me like, this woman is crazy. What is she doing? (laughs) So I get them cooked up and they brown on both sides, just like a potato. And then you take them out and you salt them just like a potato. And I handed them one and... They tasted it and the look on their face, because I know they thought I was crazy all along until they tasted it. And to see that look on their face, like, oh my word, this is amazing. And I would, you know, and they're shocked. That is a great story. And I I imagine that most people have that response like, oh, wow, this is wonderful. Yeah, I got to try it. Yeah, you need to try it. Well, you know, my dad passed away not that long ago, and I would often make avocado toast for him. And sometimes I would griddle it, you know, like flip it and griddle it a little bit if the avocados weren't super delish. And so um, I imagine it would have a similar type of a taste to what you've done there. But I never really thought about sauteing them. That sounds wonderful. And do they need to be underripe or overripe or just ripe? How do they work best? You know, you can do it regardless of how it is. You you can actually get away with it on, you know, the hard ones. They're not my favorite, but they'll work. They'll work on a, it's just so they're not too mushy. (laughs) You know, you have a quite a range. It's pretty forgiving. Okay, so now we're going to mix it up a little bit because one of our all-stars is known for her mixology. It's also pretty fitting that Lisa Lim Backus lives right outside of Las Vegas because she likes to put on a good show. During this quarantine, I did 72 days of backyard martinis. What? I want to know more about that. 72 straight days of backyard martinis? Do y'all do gin martinis or do you do like flavored martinis or vodka martinis. Tell me a little bit about what a quarantini martini would look like or taste like. 
So like you, Marty, it's all about the party, right? And it's all about celebrating everybody. So we just started off with the basics. So Jen is our favorite. Mine too. Yeah, nothing like Jen. Yeah. Especially in the summertime. Summer, winter, any day that ends in Y is good. <laughs> so we did that and we started out with some simple things, but summer had such great fruit. So I started experimenting with cantaloupe, martinis, watermelon martinis strawberries. And my big thing was I went and bought all these picks from all over and I would just do these great picks. Like uh, one time I did a pajama martini, which was just gin and pink lemonade. And I put uh, mini corn dogs and tater tots on the pick. Right. And I'm like, I didn't want to get on my pajamas that day. It was quarantine. I was tired. I didn't know what was going on with the world. And I just stayed in my pajamas and had martinis in my back. I think that sounds like a smart plan. Everybody needs a little mental health break, you know, a little day off pajama party. I think that sounds amazing. I have my own martini because, you know, Marty. So I have my martini right. that I make that I really love with lemon, cello, and palma liqueur and vodka in that one. Delicious. So sometimes I do the 50 with gin and vodka. Do you do that? I don't even know that. So you're going to have to tell me. I'm like you. I don't tend to measure so much. I'm just like, here's the ingredients. Make enough for two because all the martini recipes are for one. Now, how crazy is that? <laughs> you just put half the gin you would normal and half the vodka and then whatever else you want. So either vermouth or whatever else you're using in your martini. Yeah. And then I, I found out I wasn't a huge vermouth fan and I substituted with whiskey or champagne. And then whatever celebration of the day was, I remember that was sometime, I think in June is King Kamehameha Day. So then I did a little bit of gin and a little bit of a Mai Tai flavored thing and some pineapple skewers. And that's how I celebrated Kamehameha Day and somebody's birthday. And I just named the martini after them. I think that sounds awesome. Have you ever seen that Andy Griffith episode where they had the two sisters that made the moonshine and they were only selling it for celebrations and holidays, but they had like, you know, washer laundry day and <laughs> things, Love it. things like that were the holidays. And so, yeah, they ended up getting busted on those not so actual holidays. But these days, I think we need a reason to celebrate as much as possible. We've got more holidays around the corner, and I asked the All-Stars what's the one thing that must be on their holiday dinner table. Here are some of their answers. Christmas for me is the roast, and something that is new that uh, we've made the past two years is a tartlefette by Chef John. It is beautiful, and it presents really well. Tell us about it. Sure. It's really potatoes in a pie-type dish, and they're sliced very thin, and you're adding brie on top. Ooh, fancy. It is very fancy. It sounds I, beautiful with a roast, too. It's really nice for me. It's like a Christmas Eve kind of thing, too. You could, if you're having a late Christmas Eve, it's a nice, I don't want to say snack, because it's a little better than a snack, but it's a nice little meal that everybody can get a piece of. They really enjoy it, and you can bring it out. And it looks very fancy, as you said. Is it complicated to make? Uh, does it take long? No, it's very easy. It's just slicing the potatoes and getting the right combination of cheese. But mostly brie would work. Then Howard surprised me with another dish that has to be on his table. Turnips, believe it or not. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So we have a saying, turnips once a year, like them or not. 
Well, we have ours for New Year's, so, you know, good luck. Where I come from, you got to have greens and pork and black-eyed peas to start the year off on the right foot. So turnips is part of your Thanksgiving or your Christmas? It's both because I love turnips. I do, too. I like the savory version. I'm I'm not the marshmallow person, right? That's People that's... put marshmallows on turnips? <laughs> I've heard that. No. My mom still does the Christmas Eve cooking. And it won't be the holidays unless we have homemade spaghetti. I tried to change it to homemade raviolis because I think they're better than homemade spaghetti. And there was a uh, revolt from all of the grandchildren that we switched from ravioli to spaghetti. So (laughs) spaghetti and meatballs is one of the main staples. And it's so wonderful. You still have your mom there to do that cooking. Do you know my mother did most of the holiday cooking? I always loved waking up on Thanksgiving morning, even as an adult, when I would travel home and I'd wake up at my parents' house and smell those onions and celery cooking on the stove for the dressing. And it just stirs so many memories. Oh, hmm. It'd be between grandma's seven cheese macaroni and you are going to laugh your head off because I say I'm paleo. You ready? The pink stuff. Do you know what the pink stuff is? Oh, I'm from Alabama. Of course, I know what the pink stuff is, but let's tell everybody else. This crazy <laughs> weird combination of Jello and Cool Whip. It can't even be real whipped cream, which just hurts my culinary soul. But, you know, it's Jello, maraschino cherries, Cool Whip. And what else is in there? Crushed pineapple out of the can. And it it hurts me a little bit to stir it up. And we got the recipe from a friend. Wasn't even something that I grew up with. But my kids, (laughs) you can't, you got to have it. Listen, we all have those dishes. And the pink stuff is very popular here where I am. I love that. That is the best answer I've heard yet. On today's show, we heard from Jesse Sheehan, Angela Sackett, Howard Wolfhurst, Sheila Johnson, Lisa Lynn Backus, and Carol Castellucci-Miller. Each of them is an All Recipes All-Star. If you're interested in learning more about the All-Star program or perhaps becoming an All-Star yourself, just visit allrecipes.com slash all-stars. On next week's show, we'll get some tips for great holiday meals from some of our favorite guests from this season of Homemade. It's luxurious, so it's good for the holidays, but I I think like a roast filet beef is the easiest meal in the world to make, and you can make all different kinds of sausage. Mix it, butter, maple syrup, maybe even some soy, to get that perfect color on it, and that should last 15 to 20 minutes, and that's how you get it crispy. I love dough. I love pie dough, tart dough. But with a galette, you just roll the dough out any which way. It's nice that it has ragged edges. It's really pretty straightforward. It's just like, you're basically like making a cake, but instead of flour, you put in liquor. (laughs) (laughs) And then then you drink the cake. (laughs) We'll talk with Ina Garten, Dan Pashman, Alex Guarnaschelli, Dory Greenspan, and more. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts.
Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade. Homemade.